It's Shirley at the Planted Pot. There's just no easy way to tell you this, Jim. We did everything we could. Your fern died. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidia Ravishaw. Today we are coming to you uh, with a, I don't know, heartwarming, back-to-the-roots <laughs> kind of feeling episode. Yeah. Uh, um, season 3, episode 6, Coulter City Wildcat. I'm bringing up the IMDb now, because that's how prepared I am. <laughs> um, and I guess a quick quick general note up here at the top. As longtime listeners know, we uh, often have a lot of lag time in our episodes between when we record them and when they come out. And this is actually, as it would happen, our first regular episode that we're recording in, in, in the now time of the uh, global pandemic. Yes. <laughs> coronavirus, COVID-19 era. Uh, and I don't know, I guess it just feels weird not to acknowledge that, even though it kind of doesn't have anything to do with our show. Well, it might, it might have something to, uh, like, but yeah, I agree. Also, I'm very glad that you said it's the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Life is coming at us so fast that who knows when this comes out or when people listen to this, if there's like a second or third pandemic that we have to worry about. This is Okay, so before the asteroid strike, mm-hmm. but after the rise of COVID-19. Right. That's where we're at right now. Exactly. That's the- and so, you know, thankfully, we've always done this show at a distance. Yes. And, and we also both are self-employed and work from home. So in a weird way, it's not as disruptive for us as it is for a lot of other people. But I, I don't know. I want to acknowledge that, uh, it's a really rough and weird time. And, um, hopefully if you can get a little, a little joy or escape or fun or whatever out of our meditations on a, uh, 50-year-old television show. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, stay safe. Yeah. Uh, Practice your social distancing and wash your hands and and tell your parents to do the same. (laughs) I think that's some of what's going to come up in this episode. (laughs) Uh, Difficult conversations with elderly parents. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot in this episode. So uh, I picked this episode. Um, Again, as we record this, we're kind of coming at the back end of our Malibu Madness uh, Mm -hmm. little project, which was super fun. Um, And also, I think in revisiting a lot of the stuff that we hadn't seen for a while kind of reminded me of just... I don't know some of the some of the aspects of the show in the early seasons that since we've been doing a lot of stuff with like guest stars and two parters and stuff from some of the later seasons recently, uh, I kind of just feel like I haven't really gotten to gotten to play around and gotten to soak in very much recently. So I was scrolling through the episodes we haven't done, trying to make a pick, and I was like, "All right, we got Rocky, we got oil leases, uh, we got driving around." Okay. I think this seems like a a good one to to go to for a bit of a little heartwarming, fun romp of an episode. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, had a lot of fun watching this. I so this one, I, I you know, we go over from time to time uh, my memory, <laughs> and this one uh, did stick in my memory a little bit more than I, I think I like saw things coming around each corner, and I was like, oh, this is the part where this happens, or this is the part where that happens, uh, and I don't know if that's going to color my commentary or not, but. But um, I'm definitely not going into this one with refreshed eyes, if you will. <laughs> there was at least one moment where I made a note 
about something and then it turned out to be true and I could not tell you if it's because the episode set me up to make the realization right. or because I'd seen it before and I just kind of remembered. Yeah. Not that this is like a particularly uh, uh, labyrinthine plot counterplot episode. There are layers, though. It's a real mystery onion kind of episode. Yeah, yeah. It's a real stubborn mystery. Yeah. Jim keeps poking away at it and it just refuses to reveal itself, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But as we say, we'll get into it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when we get into it. Uh, this episode um, was directed by Russ Mayberry. As has started happening, we are reaching the full corpus of some of our directors. Oh. This is not his last, but this is the sixth of his seven Rockford Files episodes that he directed. It is also our sixth of his seven that we have done. Not necessarily in that order. Right. So there's one one to go uh, after this to complete the Russ Mayberry cycle. But uh, in addition to Coulter City Wildcat, we have also seen Hotel of Fear, Feeding Frenzy, Oracle War Cashmere Suit, Charlie Harris at Large, and The Countess, uh, many of which had yeah. uh, big appearances in Malibu Madness. That is very interesting. I had not uh, put together uh, Russ Mayberry's name with with that. I mean, I guess that's why we're doing this. Uh, that said, I feel like these are all very, uh, you know, competently, perfectly well done episodes, but uh, they don't stand out for the directing necessarily. Right, right. <laughs> Except for the the bit in Feeding Frenzy, the because uh, that's where the, oh, our yeah. uh, hostage oh. ice rink exchange was, and that was exquisite uh, yeah. in the direction. So props to Russ for that one. All right. So uh, this episode is written by Don Carlos Dunaway, which is a great name. Um, he wrote one other episode of the Rockford Files, and he also wrote the teleplay for Gear Jammers. But uh, other than that, not particularly well represented in the show. Apparently, just poking around, his main thing in the 70s was a TV show called Kaz. You familiar with wow. Kaz? That sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know. I've never seen it. He apparently created this show. It ran for one season, and it is uh, a former car thief turned criminal attorney, Martin Kaz Kaczynski, played by Ron Liebman. I mean, I believe it existed, and also I probably watched it. <laughs> Those are my two, <laughs> two facts. For that one. Not a, not a detective show, a lawyer show, but uh, one of the many fun connections. In that era, I feel like there were a lot of shows that are about lawyers that that were presented almost like a detective show format, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, Perry Mason's a, a, a classic example of that, but um, the lawyer as a mystery solver. Right. The one user review on IMDb, which is a 10-star review, does oh. say best lawyer show after Perry Mason. Well, there you go. <laughs> anyway, that's all fun and good, but uh, <laughs> what we're really here to do is get into our preview montage. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a whole lot of notes here because uh, the preview, one. it was short and it hit me with all the important bits. Uh, we hear first degree murder mentioned. Mm -hmm. So we know the stakes here for, for Jim. And uh, and I got to be honest, like I hear it, I write it down and then I forget about it till it shows up way late in the episode. <laughs> Lots of Rocky and then Rocky in danger. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, th those were my uh, takeaways from it. Uh, did you have any particular takeaways from the opening montage? Uh, just that my note about the last shot of it was a ominous hat man with a gun. Oh, yes. <laughs> it has a shot of someone wearing a hat silhouetted <laughs> in a doorway, which I'm not sure if that shot was actually in the episode. I mean, oh. it was. I know the scene it was in. But yeah. There was an ominous hat man. That's all I wanted to add. 
Hello, listeners. We're going to take a quick break to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. As always, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Shane Liebling. If you play games online, you should check out his free dice-rolling app Roll for Your Party at rollforyour.party. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., and Dale Church. And finally, big thanks to our detective-level patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenner, at Antenner, A-N-T-E-N-E-R, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Bill Anderson, at Billand88, and of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Why become a patron? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get Plus Expenses, a bonus podcast where we casually chat about all the media we're currently enjoying. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it, but if you want to help support us and get access to the Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. As this is a very Rocky episode, we start off with Rocky getting his mail. An episode about Rocky, not Rocky, <laughs> the the adjective. But yeah, go on. This is a very exposition-y episode. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot, especially at the beginning, setting up our premise. So bear, bear with us. Um, but a lot of this thematically is revolving around around Rocky feeling bad that he's old. <laughs> Yes. Not being happy with his lifestyle, I think, maybe is the the way to put that. And we start right off with that, with he's getting his mail. And what's in his mailbox? Social security check, Medicare form, flyer for retirement home. Yeah. And Rocky remembers when he got real mail, like business offers. I was, like, deeply curious about the kind of business offers people would uh, (laughs) receive in the mail. Uh, Like, I mean, we're going to get into... Uh, the whole scam thing in a moment, but I could not imagine you receiving a business offer in the mail that wasn't a scam. Uh, <laughs> like I don't get, well, I guess I do get business offers via email, but most of those are scams too. Like it's just, yeah. Yeah. Jim is with him. Jim and Rocky, they were going to go fishing, but uh, Rocky just doesn't doesn't feel like going fishing. Um, maybe that's part of the whole problem. All the fishing. Uh, there's There's got to be a better way to spend his time. Jim has a bag of groceries that he's carrying in for him, but when Rocky says that he doesn't want to go fishing after all, Jim should go have fun. He'll just, I don't know, sit around the house with his bad mail. Um, Jim's like, all right, whatever you say, and gives him his bag of groceries, uh, leaves in the Firebird. We follow Rocky as he goes into his house and then immediately gets jumped by two goons. Yes. In a pretty, pretty sudden and, and terrifying fashion it is violent um uh well first of all i'm trying to look this up and i may be wrong about this of the two goons one of them the larger one Uh, i refer to him as the the sloppy goon yeah uh so he's played by dennis berkeley now i might be mixing him up with another character another actor I mean, he was on My Name is Earl, and I know how you feel about that show. <laughs> yes. I mean, he played a character on the Dukes of Hazard called Bubba. So that gives you an accurate mental picture, Description. I think, of, <laughs> yeah. of this guy. So he was in two other Rockford Files episodes. And okay. If he seems a little familiar, perhaps it's because he was the uh, Nazi bartender from Just Another <laughs> Polish Wedding. 
<laughs> so the guy I thought he was, he's not. Mickey Jones is who I thought he was. All right. I am way off. Mickey Jones was in uh, V, the television series. Uh, he was Michael Ironside's buddy who just ran around with Uzis <laughs> because it was the 80s. This guy does have a, a long and storied career in, in uh, television and movies, though. You, you have seen him. He is our only named goon, I believe. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of goons, but he's Howard. Howard the goon. Howard the goon. He's the sloppy one. There's also a uh, yellow hat goon um, who is much more <laughs> trim and tidy, uh, wearing a trucker hat and uh, has a big belt buckle. Um, mm. They uh, uh, pounce on Rocky, slam his head down on the table and shove a paper under it and make him sign uh, this paper that we can clearly see at the top says, Assignment of Oil and Mineral Rights. Now... Here's the first moment where I'm like, I don't know if I'm remembering this or I'm catching this right now, but my notes are signing left-handed. <laughs> Not that I know for a fact that Rocky is right-handed. I don't. Until this episode, I had no idea. Uh, playing the odds, he's probably right-handed, but the the way he signs it is, it's how I would struggle to sign it if I the did The camera shows his very shaky scrawl. Yeah. And if you're paying attention, you can see that he's doing it with his left hand. Um, yeah, same. I think I remembered that this was a plot point, and <laughs> that's why I made a note of it, but it is something that's it's going to be mentioned in the next scene, right? So it's, yeah. it is setting up a little bit thing to pay off. So he signs, they leave, and as they leave his property, they're laughing. And you hear one of them say, like, I can't believe he did that. Or, or I can't believe that yeah. worked or something like that. Um, Rocky is enraged. He chases after them. Oh, um, so They're laughing at him the whole time. They roll up their windows. He's banging on the window of their car. And then as they start to pull away, he goes to their back tire and cuts the, uh, the valve stem off with his, like, pocket knife. So their tire deflates as they roll away. And he chases them. And then they get out of the car. And it's like, Rocky, what was your plan? I, okay, so I hate to see Ro Rocky mad, but I love seeing him enraged. Right? Yes. <laughs> you don't want this to have happened to him, but then the indignation with which there's the moment where he's inside the house and they're outside and they're laughing about it. And you could feel that, that it's that that draws him out. You just see him muster it. Like, just like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with these young men. <laughs> <laughs> he's like all right i'll i'll fight these two yeah young large men who just beat me up and uh of course he's no match for them and the yellow hat goon uh pistol whips him in the head and they toss him into the bushes while they get their spare tire out and we end with a shot on may not end with but we get a clear shot of yeah. his like bleeding scalp slightly gory for the rockford files actually yeah it's interesting the 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 way this the way this resolves here, right? So uh, in the very beginning of this, we just have this tension that Rocky is not, doesn't want to fish. And if you're longtime viewers of the show, you're like, oh, <laughs> like, like something is emotionally wrong with Rocky. Uh, but then he gets jumped. You don't want something to physically happen to Rocky. And then he gets angry. And then like each step, they, it, it kind of cranks up the dial on the, the uh, I don't want to say stakes here. Although it definitely, there's a stakes thing because this guy draws a gun, right? And, and that's a very clear signal to the audience, particularly in the Rockford Files, that this is serious business now, even if he's not firing it. It's less stakes and more, like, tension. Yeah. And so each time it's just, like, it's telling you this isn't funny anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like it keeps grabbing you by the collar and just staring you right in the eyes. Like, no. <laughs> 
And then we cut to... Right. Well, and I will say this is actually a really good little, maybe subtle use of the preview montage. Because in the preview montage, there's a shot of Rocky with a big bandage on his head talking to Jim. Yeah. When we see him tossed into the bushes with his bloody scalp, it's like, yeah, but he's going to be wearing that bandage and talking to Jim soon, right? Right, right. I don't think Rocky's dead. Yeah, I, like, I'm not yeah. concerned about Rocky, like, getting, like, killed off or whatever. But it is serious, but I'm waiting to see where it goes next. Which is... Dinner with Jim at the Lobster Kettle. And now I am concerned about Rocky. <laughs> and let me tell you why. <laughs> that pineapple drink. Should he be drinking that right now? <laughs> I'm sure that that enormous pineapple with uh, drink umbrellas poking out of it. Probably not great if you're concussed. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with a big head wound. I might, it might be a virgin one. They brought a separate one for Jim. Mm-hmm. So who knows? But this has got to be some some fancy tropical drink. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, and you know it's a fancy place because they're wearing coats and ties. Well, I don't know if Jim's wearing a tie, but Rocky's wearing a tie. And they're both wearing coats. So yeah, they're there for, you know, it's dinner. All right. So here's where our, our, our first big batch of exposition happens. Yeah. So this is all in the context of uh, Jim is worried about Rocky, obviously, and kind of has to draw out each element of what's going on out of Rocky because Rocky doesn't seem to think that anything is weird about any of this. Mm -hmm. This all also happens both at the table and then as they go over to the salad bar and start um, assembling their salad courses. We never see them uh, get their uh, get whatever they're eating for their main courses. I assume it's lobsters, but I, I, I do want to just just point out that the salad bar, the because of the lighting and everything, is the salad bar from every seventies cookbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing appealing about this salad bar and then of course uh in the day and age we live in there is no sneeze guards nope i did have a moment of like oh god oh god don't (laughs) eat that salad (laughs) all right so of course jim is uh concerned uh why did you chase after those guys you could have gotten killed um what were they after anyway and so rocky thinks they might have been after his oil leases (laughs) what this is news to jim he's been buying federal oil leases as an investment the deal is the uh, yes. government offers chances at at oil leases for federal property at ten dollars a month to file for potentially getting a lease, but it's uh, it's a lottery. You put your ten dollars down on a plot on a parcel, and then if you end up winning it, you get the uh, you get the lease to it, and then you know. You do whatever you want. Jim's, I think there's a good line in here where he's like, uh, if you want to gamble, why don't you go play poker, quarter a card or something like that. But no, Rocky is 1960 ahead on the deal. (laughs) He's made $1,960 because of parcel 334. So he won this parcel. Uh, His share of the winnings was $2,000. Or not the winnings. It's a little, I'm a little unclear on like, technically how this all goes down yeah so i think what from what i understand i'm trying to think of the guy's name claude's the broker okay so claude osric is getting a bunch of people to throw okay so okay this is what rocky describes let me put it that way yeah yeah he has this broker claude orzek 
Claude gets tips and good info on what the good parcels are because he has contacts at an oil company. And the oil company will pay Claude for the leases. I guess it's less than they would pay if they just wanted to buy them or something. The government setup here, which is a legit thing. This is a thing that Nathan has done some research on. <laughs> and we read uh, a very technical paper on it. So uh, I'm going to get it all wrong. Uh, in order to promote oil exploration on lands that oil companies weren't immediately interested in, right? Right. So this isn't necessarily a great thing for the world and the environment, but whatever. This is the thing that the government was doing in the 70s. They would offer up lotteries for this land. To get into the lottery, it cost $10. I put in my notes, what is that in today's money? So that I could look it up. But it turns out this this study told us it's a roughly forty five dollars in nineteen or in twenty seventeen. I don't know what it means in twenty twenty because by the time you hear this, money might not mean a thing because nothing means anything. So who knows? Yeah. But um, so that uh, Rocky's doing this once a month. He's paying out forty five dollars roughly a month, uh, ten dollars his time. But like he's on Social Security, that's a significant percentage of his annual in- or his uh, monthly income. What's probably happening is that Claude here has a has a a bunch of guys like Rocky that are all doing it to increase Claude's chances of winning the lottery on that parcel of land. Right. And Claude is either telling these guys that he has an inside edge on what ones right. are going to pay out and therefore like he's targeting those or what could also be happening in this scam is that Claude is just making himself a middleman. And if they happen to pay out, he just collects a percentage. He doesn't put any money up. He's just, right. you know, either way, this is a scam. I shouldn't say it's straight up a scam. I should say that it stinks of one. And it's clear that Jim can smell right. that. Exactly. So, yeah. So from Rocky's perspective, he's been putting putting in his $10 a month for these, or these lease filings. Parcel 334, he won. He was assigned the rights through the lottery. Uh, Claude has someone who was interested in buying the lease. And so Rocky signed over the lease that he won to that person. Claude got money and paid him his $2,000 as his percentage of that transaction. So Rocky has gotten $2,000 out of this cash. He has money. um, And he signed over that lease. So he doesn't have the lease. Except now these guys have come in and beat him up and made him sign this blank form for assignment of rights. So what is going on? Jim wants to know how he got wrapped up in this flaky scheme. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) Rocky responds, there's nothing flaky about the United States government. Yes. (laughs) I wrote that down too. (laughs) Um, now that Rocky's signed over the rights on this blank form, anyone else can take them. Uh, and Rocky's like, this doesn't make sense. That was two weeks ago. And he already sold the parcel to some guy named O'Malley. Jim's like, well, this, you know, stinks of a scam, as you say. Yeah. There must be something here going on. But don't worry, Jim. Rocky's fooled him. Because guess what? He signed with his left hand. And that means that signature is no good. That, uh, yeah. Rocky got him. Well done, Rocky. This is while they're at the salad bar. There's a beat and we hear crunching noises. And then we just have this wonderful little, just just one of the things that's like the, the family drama that is the Rockfords just continues yes. as Rocky warns Jim. Oh, watch them. They're stale. No, no, no. These are croutons, Dad. They're not stale. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a good joke. It's very good. So it's after dinner. They're going going to Jim's car. 
And Jim's just worried that those guys are going to come back once they, you know, once they see that that signature is a bad signature and they're not going to be able to use it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, oh, for a time when it mattered what your signature looked like. Yeah. <laughs> this entire episode rests on the premise that Rocky's left-handed signature would somehow invalidate the scam, which is the hardest thing to swallow about this entire thing. <laughs> I mean, later on, it becomes the truth. Um, but at this point, I think it, it felt to me that Jim was like, you know, oh, my sweet summer child. Like, yeah. But it, it does feel like later on in the episode that it's just a thing they, they can depend on and, and, and Rocky's safe because he did that that clever thing uh but i mean like if you could do that you could do that like anytime you write a check and then just decide which ones you want to honor Mm. uh yeah it doesn't seem quite right there is still a chance that rocky's in danger right Mm -hmm. um and so he wants rocky to let him deal with it he's a professional after all and they have a great back and forth about uh his uh you know professional credentials in this area and whether Rocky's going to let him do it or not. And uh, finally, Rocky says that he'll hire Jim like anyone else. Yes. Jim says, you can't afford me. <laughs> yes. And Rocky says, what are you talking about? I just got all that money from my oil lease. <laughs> yes. That's right, Jim. Eat it. <laughs> I love this scene. Jim, as, as per usual, will not take money from Rocky, but... He agrees that maybe there's some money in it somewhere. So if they end up coming out of this whole thing, uh, making more than $2,000, he'll take a share of those profits. He'll take a percentage. Yeah. And Rocky says, all right, 50-50. Uh, and Jim doesn't, that's way too much. But no, Rocky wants to be partners. Yeah. And in the face of all of this, Jim, what's Jim going to do? Say no. <laughs> so now we have Rockford and Rockford. Yes. Detective and Dad. Well, and now we have the the credits rolling over the montage of them driving to Coulter City. So we've talked about this before, where sometimes the credits don't, you know, come up until later in the the episode. And the entry for this episode in 30 Years of the Rockford Files talks specifically about that. Oh, because I do. I have things I want to know about this. Maybe this will explain it. Go on. So this is a quote from uh, Charles Floyd Johnson, the producer. Mm -hmm. He's a producer for the whole time. Uh, The way the stories were written, there was often a lot of important exposition at the beginning of the show. And we felt that it might distract the audience if they had to contend with the credits flashing while there was important dialogue or action going on. In those instances, we would wait until there was a break in the action or some kind of transition sequence where we could put in the credits without taking away from the story. And this goes on to say that this is a uh, Roy Huggins influence. So Roy Huggins, the original creator of the show, along with Stephen Cannell. Apparently Huggins always advised his writers not to bother with writing breaks like end of act one end of act two into their teleplays because he believed that if the story was strong it could be broken anywhere and still carry suspense nice similarly it isn't necessarily important whether you show the opening credits at the top or several minutes into the show what matters is that the story is good and the picture works nice and i thought those were both things that that would resonate with both of us yeah i would agree not agreeing with um roy but agreeing with what you said there uh i I probably do agree with roy i just didn't i wasn't thinking (laughs) (laughs) i don't necessarily disagree with roy Uh, i like his uh take on that so here's the thing we were talking about this being exposition heavy there's first of several moments where the exposition comes in voiceover that feels like it was added after post right or in post or whatever you know like uh and it's not uncomfortable during the this travel montage with the the opening credits but a little bit later we'll get into it but there's 
a moment where it's almost like a still of Rocky's face while Jim is talking. And I'm like, okay, I, all right. It does definitely feel like they're like, Oh, we forgot to explain that. And, and we have to put that in, but um, maybe I'm wrong about that. But what was the name of Rocky's restaurant? Are you talking about his reference to the gear jammer tavern? Yeah. That's not his restaurant. Though, no, is it? no, 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 no. Okay. Rocky's Summit. Rocky's Summit, yes. So yeah. he references the Gear Jammer Tavern here, but yes, his restaurant in Attractive Nuisance is Rocky's Summit. All right, I just, I was like, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> Part of the voiceover during the credits during this montage is Jim asks him who turned him on to the scheme, and it was Harry down at the Gear Jammer Tavern, uh, who Jim remembers as the guy who lost $500 on an astrology chain letter. <laughs> And another element is the montage of oil derricks that they pass uh, yeah. while Rocky is excited that one of those might be his. Yes. So they arrive in Culture City. A, there's a starting a motif of uh, Jim wanting Rocky to stay out of trouble. He wants him to check into the hotel while he'll go meet this Claude Orzek and talk to him. This is the first time I noted it in my notes, but Rocky's got a, an excellent hat throughout this episode. Uh, it's in contrast to the hat I'm used to him and seeing him in. <laughs> Maybe that's his traveling hat. It's his doing doing detective work hat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim poses as a Oklahoma oil man named Lyle Sayer to talk to this Claude Orzek. And there's a bunch of good just character patter. It's not really fast talk because he doesn't really need Orzek to do anything that he wouldn't normally do. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's just it's just good patter. Yeah, I hate to interrupt you, Mr. Orzak, but I'll tell you what I'd like for you to do. I wish you'd make a list of all the available leases and how much you want for them. Then I'm going to get my car and I'm going to drive right out there and stand on them. That's how I buy all my leases, Mr. Orzak. If there's oil under there, I can feed it. And I got to say, uh, in my years of uh, an expert as a television transcriber, uh, I, there was a show, a reality show about wildcatting. I think it might even been called wildcatting mm. uh, about oil uh, prospecting. It's a, it's a wonderful affectation, but also it's very much like these characters. Like <laughs> these people really do believe they have magic powers. Mm -hmm. This story here, this is a gold rush story, right? Like mm. this is people trying to jump uh, a prospector's claim and and rocky is the prospector and mm. i i love this sort of modernized version of mm. it and uh again showing the the perhaps uh maverick western roots mm -hmm. of of uh the rockford files this feels like a very it doesn't say anywhere that huggins was involved with this one but this feels like a very roy huggins -y story yeah and actually and the writer uh was did some of the teleplays for Toma, which I believe, if I remember right, was Roy Huggins' uh, kind of failed project before this, I think. I feel like, I wonder if there's that connection. All right, all that said, uh, Jim and Rocky drive out to Parcel 334. Uh, it appears to be host to a bunch of orange groves. Uh, there's a, a barbed wire fence on the property line. Um, on the other side, they can see big sets of tire tracks, and Rocky assesses them with a professional eye. I love this. It, just anytime you can bring in Rocky's expertise. Because Jim is not dismissive of it, but he's like, oh, it's probably farm equipment, right? Like, mm. Jim doesn't catch this clue. It's Rocky that's like, no, he knows the exact rig. It's too big to be a normal farm equipment. Yeah. Like, it's some kind of specific hauling rig for very heavy things. And, I mean, I personally don't know the difference, but I do know that farming equipment could be really big and heavy. So, uh, like, but 
you know, there, there are definitely differences, and I trust Rocky. Exactly. Um, there's a no trespassing sign, which Rocky automatically uh, respects. Yeah. <laughs> but Jim yeah. says, there ain't no one around. Uh, and then as he ducks under the barbed wire and gets his clothes caught on it, then a, uh, a goon with a shotgun just appears out <laughs> of nowhere. Yes. And a hell of a cowboy hat. Jim plays innocent, like, oh, we were just driving and saw these oranges, and we sure love oranges for breakfast. And, uh, you know, we didn't see the sign and, and all this business um the goon is not charmed and so Mm -hmm. you know jim ducks back out and you know they go back to the car and he does get in a question about like uh about the tracks i think yeah he said like we didn't see the sign and we just assumed there was a lot of traffic because of these tracks or something along those lines and the guy says oh we've been locking and uh and then and then rocky says uh I guess you've been doing a little out-of-season hunting. No season on varmint. <laughs> it's, yes, it's good. Uh, so there's this s- small... Okay, it's not it's not a theme. Uh, it's a motif, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ethical differences between Rocky and Jim here, right? Mm-hmm. So in the earlier scene, when, when Jim told Rocky to check in while he was going to go talk to Claude, uh, he basically, he told... He goes, I'm going to go find out how much that, that parcel is really worth. And Rocky's like, I want to go with you. And he's like, no, you check in or whatever. While he's doing that, he's going through his business cards. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, he pulls out his, his deck of uh, business cards because uh, he knows exactly the oil man he's going to use. Uh, it's not made evident in the scene, but uh, being a longtime viewer, like, to me, I'm like, the, uh, that's clearly a thing that Rocky's going to disapprove of. Right? Mm. There's, there's no way Rocky is going to uh, be cool with him pretending to be someone else. And then the posted sign thing, again, it like Rocky's like, oh, it's posted. And Jim's like, that's not a barrier. <laughs> I think this comes forward again. Maybe we'll get to it. Yeah, there's definitely at least one more thing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the this is the 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 three part bit, right? Like it's it's sort of like the we're gonna build you up to this moment where where Rocky gets to make this claim about Jim's uh, ethics, right. and they can have it. It is not the point of the episode; it's just a well crafted under bit that's going on. Under bit being a technical term. Uh, the Rockfords leave, and our uh, cowboy goon goes back to his truck where he makes a call in to number one about a couple of fellas asking questions, yes. and he's instructed to follow them. Uh, so we cut to night at the motel. Uh, Jim and Rocky are returning. The The woman at the desk is, <laughs> has incredible hair. Yes. Just completely distinctive. She is the 70s. And this is important, as it turns <laughs> out. But she's on the phone uh, basically having like a, a, a gossipy phone call with a girlfriend or something. Yeah. I'm sure if I went back and listened to what she was actually saying. Yeah. I would pick out this thing that actually does come back later. But in the moment, she's just like talking on the phone. I'm paying attention to Jim, who's saying, uh, you know, we like a wake up call at 6 a.m. Yeah. To establish that they're not going to go anywhere. Right. We see them being watched from across the street from the truck as they go into their room and then turn out the lights. The guy in the truck uh, takes a swig out of his beer and settles the hat over his eyes. For his own snooze, and then we go to the uh, rear window where Jim and Rocky are sneaking out the back, and Jim whispers, we gotta go rent a car. <laughs> now, the fate of this car troubles me so. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to it, but uh, as as Jim's volunteer bookkeeper, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm fretting. This is a very uh, uh, frenetic episode for Jim's finances. 
Especially towards the end. Yes, it very much is. So we cut back to morning, back at parcel 334, now in a rented car. And Jim is wearing an amazing pale yellow windbreaker. That is just one of my favorite. I think he's worn it in more than one episode, but uh, it's so good. Yes. So they uh, scoot back onto the property. uh, And then Rocky spots kind of hidden behind some trees uh, a well, uh, an oil well. That must be why these guys wanted this parcel. Uh, they see that it's capped, so this well must be dry. But then Jim rubs the dirt off the the pressure indicator, and it is at 7,000 PSI. So either it's stuck, or there's still oil. So Jim then uh, throws caution to the winds and turns the big crank on the side of the uh, of this well, and a bunch of oil comes shooting out. I have a question. <laughs> I, I do want to say that this is a well-filmed the sound in it yeah it's amazing the sound in this scene is really good he says seven thousand psi and you don't understand how humanly impossible it it is to deal with that kind of pressure it's so much pressure yeah and then and then he opens it up and you're like holy it's this huge spray of oil just shooting into the trees and they're shouting set screw on the ground can't find it, Sonny. I don't know. Did they just open an oil well? What kind of uh, studio magic did they need to do to yeah. this effect? Like, is it an effect or did, are they just spraying orange trees with oil? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it would be too hard to find. I, you know, I feel like they probably like, we need to find a hidden oil well. Oh, this one's great. It's in a, a grove of orange trees or whatever. Uh, if, if, in fact, this is a legit oil well that they just, in the production, opened up. But... Even that, like they opened it up, and the the wheel, the the crank mm-hmm. falls off, which is I don't think improved. <laughs> it, it's it an important a, part. It is it is a wonderful uh, classic comedy routine. Yeah, because he's opened it up, and now he's got no way to stop it. He's lost the the, the leverage. Yeah, yeah. There's a pin. There's a set screw. Yeah, that is that has fallen off, and he can't find it. And of course. This is drawing the attention of... Uh, of the goons. Yeah. Yeah, so two cars full of goons roll up. A, a truck, the truck that we saw in the last scene, and another car. This is important. Yes. And then our original goons, plus uh, two more goons with guns, come out and spread out to find Jim and Rocky, who must be around there, uh, while our main guy, the sloppy goon, is yelling to, you know, yelling at his guys to find the set screw to get this wheel back on and et cetera, et cetera. So this whole scene, there's no score. It's just the thrumming of the oil just shooting yeah. out of the well. So it's good. pretty great. I, I also want to say, like, I grew up in rural Ohio and uh, semi-rural Wisconsin. Running through a field of any sort is impossible and i think they do a good job of showing that (laughs) if it's a freshly tilled field it's just a nightmare because it you you sinking into the dirt you just can't you know this isn't but this is full of ruts and it really does feel like that they're constantly negotiating and navigating the ground while they're trying to to avoid being caught and that i i appreciate that uh one of our our previously unseen goons uh, with a pistol sees the rental car and kind of posts up behind a tree to like wait for them to come out but jim sees him do that uh and, you know, he has a gun, they don't, so he wants no part of this. Yeah, yeah. So they hustle back to the goon's cars. Uh, Jim has to hotwire the truck. The, uh, the the cowboy who had gone back to the truck to get the pipe wrench that he says he has to turn this oil off sees them, 
yells, takes a shot at them with the shotgun. Uh, they peel out, and then car chase is on. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about this car chase. Uh, before I do, I want to preface it again by mentioning that we did Malibu Madness just before this. <laughs> so my tastes in car chase have been honed. <laughs> Sharpened like a knife. Yes. And uh, there's a bit in this one that I really enjoy. Uh, but otherwise, it's not that great of a chase, if I if I may. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Let me... I think I liked that it was kind of like you said, how they, they how you see how hard it is to run across a field. Yes. I think this chase, you really do see what a pain in the ass it is to drive on these rural, rural roads. Yeah. The thing that matters here is that Jim took the truck and not the sedan. My first note was, oh, the four-wheel. And it seems like that's Jim's choice. He he doesn't see keys in either car and decides to hotwire that one, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a, a uh, forward thinking. And then, um, you know, you wait for that to really pay off. And it, it, it does at the very end. But uh, the crates, I guess, is the, the part where I was The like, crates is a little... So, yeah, the, the chase is basically... We, we do have a nice long shot to see all the dust getting kicked up as uh, these two cars race down these uh, dirt roads. And Jim's first real play is he takes a steep embankment to go down to, like, where it switches back or something. Yeah. Uh, that the other car can't follow, so it has to take a different route. But it still catches up with them again. Jim busts through a wooden fence, which is very exciting. It's a little Dukes of Hazard-y, but Dukes of Hazard comes later. So maybe Dukes of Hazard is <laughs> a little uh, Coulter City Wildcatty. And then he just takes this turn through this like open barnyard. Yeah. Where there's just a big stack of empty like apple crates or something. Probably orange crates, right? Like we're so that orange would make sense. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is from the preview montage where we see this uh, truck just sideswipe through this giant pile of empty crates. Yes. It is very like, all right, let's have a dramatic moment. Let's pile up all these empty crates and you can just drive through them. It's, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, probably what's happening here is that I am a jaded person living in the year 2020 where any anybody programming any kind of video game with any physics engine is doing that. <laughs> like just stacking up blocks and then knocking them down. You're like, oh, yay, that was fun. I made that happen. Whereas probably back then you literally had to stack up crates and, and drive into it with a car. So if you had the production company, you might as well and enjoy the, the spectacle of it. But it, it to me, it felt... Um, yeah, I don't know why I'm critical of it. It just felt really... It felt staged. Staged, yeah. Which is a little out of tune with the rest of the chase, which is very naturalistic. Yeah. But whatever, it's it's an exciting moment. Yeah, it is. Jim then follows up going down a steep, a steep uh, cliff by going up one, and we can see, like, the tires on this yeah, four-wheel you know drive truck going like almost all the way up into the chassis like you can really see it's only because of the suspension of this particular truck that he can make yes. this maneuver work and then the sedan tries to follow and bottoms out isn't isn't tall enough and is stuck and so that's how they they lose their pursuers so um i liked it i thought it was a a, a fun chase just on the watching these these cars bounce around level Oh, no, I definitely agree with that. I think that that was the part that was like, okay, how do we describe the differences between the the way the two involved in the chase can deal with the situation rather than them just being the same thing going through i think that's actually what why I, I stuck on the crate because the crate thing was just the sort of thing that you would see in any other chase so they lost their pursuers but this whole thing is still confusing uh, jim is speaking for the audience here as well i think right 
Hmm. If Rocky sold his lease two weeks ago, why are these guys still after his signature? What about this old O'Malley guy? Who is he? Um, yeah. So they're, they're back to square one. And uh, we have a, a, a joke in the cut here where they're going to need a new car. Yes. And then we cut to the new rental, which is a, uh, a fancier looking car, I would say. And Rocky's saying that... For a car that costs $23 a day, they didn't even clean out the ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I'm supremely concerned. Let me just let's see, take just a moment with the car rental thing. <laughs> I did not rent a car in the 70s. I don't know what that's like. I've rented a car more recently, and it was a bit of a nightmare. But uh, they crept out of their hotel room in the middle of the night to rent that first car. Right. And that car has now been left in an orange grove. Yes. <laughs> it is, as far as they know, it's just been given up. Mm-hmm. Um, how big is Coulter City? Does it have two car rental places? Can Jim walk into the same one 12 hours later <laughs> and rent another car having not returned the first? I feel like the implication was that they went somewhere else. Yeah. Both because they went to a different, they had to go to a different town for this next scene. I forgot oh, what it's right. called, but they we had an establishing shot of the sign. And also because it's such a nicer car. Right, right. So I thought the implication was like, we had to go to the fancy rental place because we already went to the cheap rental place. <laughs> Anyways, these are the things I'm worried about uh, when it comes to Jim. So we have a reprise of Jim getting ready to fight with Rocky about staying in the hotel. Yes. But Rocky gets him first. Uh, We went through kind of quickly, but the first time Rocky was like insisting on coming and Jim was like, no, uh, the logistics are important to Rocky. You need to check in and make sure that our hotel is good while I do this. And it's Jim trying to give Rocky something to do so that he won't stay in his way, right? Mm -hmm. And we see Jim gearing up to have that same struggle but rocky undercuts him by saying you know i think it'll be better if i stay in the hotel room this time it might yes. be dangerous if i walk around and those guys see me again rocky's wording it like it's it's not about him being afraid it's about him you know like he'll he'll ruin the case by being vulnerable that it'll it'll mess up their whole thing not that he's afraid for himself but he, you know he just went through all of this right and it's just like yeah maybe i'll just stay behind and Jim is relieved. Yes. Um, so Jim is off to talk to the U.S. Geological Survey uh, officer who is in charge of these leases. Mm-hmm. His name is uh, Walter, Walter Link, um, who is played by yes. Jerry Hardin, who also played Newt, one of the mayor's committee. Uh, yes. The one that was so excited about all the celebrities that he thought he saw in the mayor's committee from Jalik Falls. There's something about... I, this character in particular uh, that he just does so well that I'm just like, I like this guy to the point where I was suspicious of him because I liked him. <laughs> Should I like this guy so much? No, he's he's well acted. And this guy, an, another storied actor, plenty of stuff out there. So he, uh, so this is another kind of exposition he's seen, but it's also kind of the crux of the plot in a way. He recognizes Jim's name, Jim Rockford. So Jim's not running anything. He's literally like, I, I want to ask you some questions about your job, right? Like yeah. a citizen. Um, so he recognizes Rockford uh, because he just sent out the lease to Joseph Rocker, uh, to Rocky, uh, that morning. He's been on vacation, so he's just now catching up with all the paperwork. So first of all, that thing about everything being settled two weeks ago, clearly that is not true because yeah. the lease was just sent out today. Jim asks how it all works. Uh, and so the deal is the Bureau of Land Management distributes these leases and runs the auctions. 
but they're not official, like the sales are not official, until this particular officer, Walter, signs and stamps the the lease document, and then he mails it to whoever, you know, won the lease. What address did he send it to? Taraki's P.O. Box, right here in town. <laughs> yes. Which, you know, is news to Jim, and I assume is part of the scam, right? Yeah. So, uh, Jim confirms. Uh, anyway, right now, my dad holds title to that lease, right? Sure does. Unless he's assigned it to someone else, of course, uh, in which case the assignment becomes valid as soon as the lease is issued, which was this morning. Jim then asks him if he knows a Gerald O'Malley, who is the person that Rocky says he sold the lease to. And uh, Walter Link says that, no, he doesn't. But there's like a weird pause. And then we cut to Jim pulling up to a guy that we shortly learn is Gerald O'Malley. Yeah. Jim knows how to find things out, so he finds him some other way. Yeah. As mentioned, our next scene is a cut to Jim pulling up to an old guy in suspenders chopping wood. He poses as a George Wheeler with the National Credit Institute. Mm-hmm. He's running a credit check on Claude Orzek, and so he wants to ask some questions. He's under the apprehension that uh, they've had some kind of business dealings. So this scene is great. <laughs> I mean, there's some stuff earlier in the episode also, but from here on, I feel like everything gets really tight mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what each scene shows us and then what is important for later reveals. Yes. Right? This scene, when you're watching it, feels like a, a throwaway gag. Mm-hmm. And speaking of memorable side characters, Gerald o- O'Malley... Uh, California survivalist is mm-hmm. uh, a hell of a guy, but we'll get to that in a second. Here's what happens. And again, I would skip it, except that it's actually important later. Mm-hmm. Jim has his business card for, you know, National Credit Institute or whatever, hands it to O'Malley. O'Malley looks at it and says, my eyesight's bad. I can't really make this out. But if you can read it, that's good enough for me. <laughs> then Jim puts on these little half moon glasses and mm-hmm. looks at it, he's like, like he kind of plays along a little bit. Yes. If you go to the IMDB, yeah. that is the the picture they've chosen for this episode. And uh, it's adorable. That's very good. So, uh, yeah, he's running this credit check. But it's not that they've done business. It's that uh, they're, they're cousins. He's my, my mother's sister's boy, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically, because I wrote this down, mother's sister's boy by her third husband. <laughs> it's like, oh, so have you bought an oil lease from him? And he says, no, I won't have anything to do with oil. In fact, he's been coming around and having me sign anti-oil petitions. Interesting. But I won't even use oil products. Won't be a party to it. Uh, oil leads to war. <laughs> Yes. Uh, And now we get into Gerald O'Malley, California survivalist conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I mean, like, it's good that conspiracy has a little question mark after it. (laughs) (laughs) I I spend a little time on this. So Rockford is humoring him, which is what Rockford would do anyways. Like, or rather, that would be part of Rockford's tact to get information he'd need to get out of it. But also it plays a little bit like, not almost like a wink to the audience, right? Mm -hmm. But watching it, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) This dude's dude's on to something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't look into the specific conspiracy that he was spinning. Right, right. I would like to talk about Mr. Orzek. I'm a little confused. Any graduate physics student can rig one. It may not be the most efficient bomb in the world, but it don't really matter. Even if it's a low yield, say, uh, well, 
10 kilotons. All it takes is a few of them strategically placed. Do you think that our government is going to admit that its own carelessness is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of its own citizens? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's uh, not a very pleasant thought, Mr. O'Malley. He, he uh, wraps up to, uh, you, you want to see my shelter? He sort of whispers it, and it's great. I mean, again, he's conspiratorial, right? Like, hey, you want to see my shelter? And it just, uh, <laughs> and there's a pause there before Jim responds. That it's almost like, oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> but he says uh, he'd love to, but not right now because he is running late. Maybe some other time. Uh, uh, O'Malley just keeps talking at him the whole time as he gets back to his car. And I think we do see the transition from Jim humoring him in character to Jim being like, I got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, he says uh, Jim should build his shelter now because charity ends where survival begins, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great line. That Yeah, I wrote that one down, too. And then uh, after Jim leaves, we have a slow, ominous zoom on the entrance to Gerald O'Malley's underground bunker. Yes. Happy, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the Information Superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the worldwide wrestling, pro wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. Back in their uh, hotel room. It's more of a motel, but back in their uh, lodging. Like, okay, so O'Malley doesn't have anything to do with this. <laughs> Yes. But Rocky's lease that he signed over to him is still floating around out there somewhere. And the two guys with guns are, as Jim says, just country beef. So (laughs) from now on, I'll be referring to our goons as beef. Yes. There must be someone in charge of this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, And Jim wants to find whoever it was that sunk the well on that property in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we have a a Jim talking to folks montage uh, as we cut back and forth to uh, our country beef uh, ominously pulling up in front of the motel room that Jim and Rocky are staying in. Uh, Our sloppy goon breaks in, busts in through the door, but nobody's there. But there is a note on the table. Rocky went to Pete's Cafe. And we'll be back in half an hour. Uh, We then cut back and forth a little bit 
Uh, Rocky wanders over to this cafe. Jim comes back to the room, sees the broken door, yes. sees the note, runs back out to his car. The the beef pulls up outside the cafe. And at this point, I note that they seem to be driving a pretty nice car. Like, before this, we've seen them in, like, trucks and kind of, like, generic sedans. Not only that, I had a moment where I couldn't tell if that car was their car or Jim's rental. Yeah, same. Uh, I do want to say something about the cafe thing, and I think that happens before they pull up. I'm not entirely entirely sure listeners when you're watching this if you're watching this again or whatever like please note the guy sitting at the counter drinking his coffee dressed exactly like the tables (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's very good um so rocky sees them outside the cafe yeah then we cut outside and we see them see him notice them and duck away from the window so they run in and yell at the uh the woman behind the counter where's the old man and she says that he ran out the back so they run out the back and are looking for him. Then Jim runs in. Excuse me, I'm looking for a gray-haired man wearing a straw hat and suspenders. Out back. Hey! No! It's all right. It's all right, honey. This is my boy Jimmy here. We fool him, Jim. Rocky pops up from, uh, I think Mm -hmm. he was behind the door of the telephone booth. I think so, yeah. Good old Rocky bamboozled that beef and uh, managed to save his own hide, which is pretty great. Bamboozled that beef. That's a great line. Uh, I had written down, well played, Rocky. Also, I I wanted to note the waitress's, like, heart-wrenching no when Jim sees Rocky. Like, she sells it. (laughs) She is invested in Rocky's safety. You believe that Rocky spending any amount of time with particularly a working class person yes, yeah. would, you know, he'd definitely be friends with them almost instantly that they would care that much about him. And as we quickly find out, Rocky doesn't even care about those guys because right. he's been talking to Phyllis and uh, she needs a private detective. Yes. Uh, and so Jim's like, okay, great. Let's talk about this somewhere else. I told her you're the best there is. I, I want So this scene, I think, was a great job. Uh, I mean, like we always talk about how great they do with tension, but it just has these these wonderful beats. The the goons are at the 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 hotel, and you're like, oh dear, Rocky's in the hotel. They bust the door open, and Rocky's not there. But they there's a note saying where Rocky is. And now you're, uh, if you're me, you're thinking, is he really there, or is Rocky already mm. playing some trick on them? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you see that Rocky's at the 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 restaurant you're like oh no and then jim shows up and and you think oh maybe jim will get there to save him and so it's just like these these moments of revealing these uncertainties about the future until it kind of comes to i just i think it's just well done i think it like uh it's a the whole thing's a bit it's a little comedic but in a good way uh and it still holds this tension and it still has you like not necessarily on the edge of your seat but you're definitely like Oh, oh, yeah. What's going to happen next? I mean, some episodes, like, they balance comedy and, and menace, right? Really yeah. Well. This episode is not necessarily that there's a lot of menace, but it's that the, the villains of our piece, which so far are just these goons, are just, just the beef, they are playing everything very straight. So yeah. they're counterweighting the comedy that we yeah. are getting yeah. from the situation and from, like, Jim not being able to turn off the oil and uh, Rocky, you know, making this uh, making friends with the waitress immediately. Like, these are comedic beats that are uh, kind of float along on top of this, like, solid core of these, like, these goons who really want a thing and are willing to do violence to get it. And you you do feel like as long as, as Jim and, and Rocky just stay one step ahead, they're clearly smarter. Right. 
but they don't know what's going on still. So, yeah. like, it's a bit of a chase in that way. So, uh, yes, they do go back, uh, apparently back to their hotel. I'm not quite sure where they are. It doesn't really matter. It might be Phyllis's <laughs> place. Um, she hasn't seen her boyfriend in three weeks, and that's why she needs a private detective uh, to find out what, what happened to him. And Jim kind of cuts her off and is like, uh, let me guess, uh, is his name Al and he's a roustabout? And that's true. Uh, how did you know that? So I have a note here. Did he overhear this from the woman on the phone with the hair? Yeah, I'm thinking maybe. Uh, but we also had a montage of him going around town asking people questions. Right. And I remember thinking at the time, who is he asking what? Well, he did like he set that up by saying he wanted to find out who who sank the well on that property. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and that is also definitely a moment when he could have gotten the information about the roustabouts and stuff like that. So but yeah, he has these specific things and she's so impressed that he he's already figured that much out. And so he says that he might be able to help, but she needs to go home now. And she gives him her number and says she could be found at Pete's. Rocky is impressed, too. He's like, how did you know that? Well, he says that um, nobody in town knows that there's a drill on that land. Like, no mm-hmm. one seems to know about that well, which means that someone has gone to a lot of trouble to cover their tracks, perhaps including disposing of the drilling crew. Because right. that's a whole group of guys that has to do that. I think he says the woman with the hair yes. <laughs> from the other hotel on the phone, she was saying that her boyfriend was also missing and that he had, like, run off. She thought he'd run off or something, right? So there's all these, like, roused about boyfriends that are missing. Uh, mm-hmm. So that might be part of the whole deal. And uh, at this point, he thinks they need to go try talking to Orzek again because he's all they have left. I was thinking of, uh, about this after the episode had finished. So this is not the case he's on, right? This is definitely somebody else who needs his help. Uh, it is definitely about what he's doing, but it's not like like in other episodes when someone else gets when someone gets hired or brought to him by Rocky or whatever. Like this is the last we hear of it until the end when things are tidied up. Uh, this gets solved along with everything else he's dealing with, right? Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's it's an interesting thing because it feels to me like uh, rather than this being a case, this is a clue. This isn't a mystery. Uh, this is a, another element to the mystery that he has here. There's not a mystery of Phyllis's missing boyfriend. Right. The fact that Phyllis has a missing boyfriend is now a clue to yeah. what he's already trying to figure out, which is... What the hell is going on with this land? Yes, exactly. It, it is interesting because the way it it, it kind of uh, follows the pattern of like a, a thing that would be more towards the beginning of an episode, hmm. but it's placed here towards uh, I guess the third act. Is that where we're roughly? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're we're about to get into the our third act. I think not that there needs to be one written into the script. Oh, right. but um yeah it's it's a bit of a like they're throwing this thing in now but it is all part of the same yeah plot i also want to just say of course rocky knows exactly how many men you need to drill yeah i think he says it's like 20 men or something yeah that's another lovely rocky Mm -hmm. deal Well, as we know from the farnsworth stratagem yes right (laughs) rocky knows all about oil drilling all right, so we go tonight to Orzek's office where they're around, going around the back and breaking in, uh, kind of, because the door is already open. This is where we get the motif of Rocky's uh, uh, ethical 
stance coming up again where he's like you can't just break in there it's like well the door's already open yes exactly um rocky's clearly uncomfortable so he stands like 10 feet away he social distances (laughs) yes uh and just watches jim so that he's not quite participating even though he's clearly participating and we see jim see orzek sitting in his chair eyes closed Mm -hmm. he's dead then we have a cut for a commercial break (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we come back to Jim going through a filing cabinet, and there's no folder in there for parcel 334. Is this the part where we have a, 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 a tight shot on Rocky's face, and we hear yeah. Jim positing what he thinks is going on? Right away, we feel this uh, tension between Rocky and Jim, where Rocky wants to leave, and Jim wants to keep digging. And I think that's why this close-up stands out so much, because then Jim is starting to uncover things, and then he starts positing what's going on. And while he's doing that, it's a close-up of almost still Rocky, not reacting to him, and specifically not acting like he needs to leave, but more of just like, hmm, mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he is the the blank canvas on which we can hear this... uh supposition i feel like what probably happened in the production here is that they filmed it all and they were done and then they were like oh we need to explain something yeah like i said there are a little a few elements earlier that felt a little bit like that and i think there's even one after this that happens where it just feels a little bit like okay here's a moment where we have a camera on someone who isn't the person talking we're just going to Put in more voiceover from the person talking just to get a little bit more. It's not it's not horrible. It does feel. Yeah, it feels a little like, yeah, put together in post a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. So Jim's supposition here is that Orzek and a silent partner must have been running a con to rip off these oil leases. Uh, That's the only thing that makes sense. And now the partner has turned on Orzek. We cut to a police car and we get a very specific call. Yes. Two X-ray zebra and any unit in the vicinity. Identify and handle at 211-4654 McAvenue. Claude Orzek's office. First floor. Handle code three. Right? So this is more of what I'm saying. Like, the voiceover stuff, maybe even to a fault. I think this is a little, like, over-explained. Not not just because of this, where it goes into incredible detail about where this break-in is, which I guess could make sense if like they were being set up but they're not really it's kind of an accident of timing uh but then they replay this again the next time we see the police car like (laughs) just to make sure in case you haven't been paying attention they're at the place the cops are going um so we go back uh jim says that so o'malley said that orzek was always having him sign petitions but he had such bad eyesight he couldn't actually see what those papers were they were probably blank lease assignment forms Mm-hmm. Uh, so Orzek has his clients sell them to O'Malley. Then he just signs his own name and gets them back, quote, from O'Malley. And then he owns the leases again. Sure enough, he finds just such a form in another filing cabinet. So this is paying off the, the whole thing with the business card, right? Yeah. It's weird because the scene's very loose in the way that we were just talking about with the voiceovers. Yeah. But then it's also very tight with the longer running bits. Yes. So they find just such a form. So there's a blank form with O'Malley's signature on it. So now all Rocky needs to do is sign his own name to this form. And then he'll get the rights back from O'Malley that he signed over to him originally. Yes. Right. Uh, And they'll get his parcel back. Um, So whoever killed Orzek must not know about the O'Malley scam. Mm Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, why would they be doing all this? Yeah, They're yeah. probably heading out to O'Malley's now to get him to sign the parcel back over to them. 
We'll, we'll go back to that in a second. <laughs> uh, so Rocky wants to leave, and Jim's like, no, no. <laughs> he goes to a phone book, gets O'Malley's number, calls him, and then claims to be from the county self-defense unit. Yes. Now, government agencies have informed us that the Che Guevara unit of the ALF is planning to detonate a jerry-rigged nuclear device in Bakersfield unless some federal prisoners are released by daybreak this morning. Oh, wait a minute. What's the yield, man? What's the yield? Am I in the kill radius? And uh, he doesn't have to do much selling of this, and soon enough, O'Malley yells, Oh, shut up! I got a million things to do here! Rocky says that uh, it's not, that wasn't very nice. Uh, Rocky specifically says that's the dirtiest trick I've ever heard you pull. Mm. And I think this is the culmination of that under bit that we were talking about, <laughs> where we just keep touching on the the fact that Rocky is not aware of the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. The everyday things that Jim does as part of his business. Yeah, that, that Rocky would obviously not approve of until he got used to them or whatever. But like currently does not approve of. And in fact, we do get this moment where Jim justifies it. He says that man built the, that bomb shelter to save his life. And that's what it's going to do. We're just helping him save his life here. And then we end the scene with, they try to leave, but there's already a police car in the back alley. They try to go at the front and a, uh, a, a sheriff of some kind arrives sees the dead man in the chair behind them and uh, has him lay down on the ground. They have been they have been caught presumably in the act. But thankfully, we see O'Malley getting to his shelter just as the beef shows up and they come <laughs> running up to him with guns, which I assume is exactly what he's afraid of. So he jumps down there and closes the hatch and then we have again from from like a real kind of Looney Tunes cartoon kind of moment where they're banging on it with the butts of their guns. Yes. And then the, the, the sloppy goon, the main guy, throws his hat down in frustration. Uh, it's good. Good old Mally. He's, he's safe. Um, all right. So the thing I wanted to, I don't know if we need to belabor this. Belabor away. So from the perspective of, of our bad guy, whoever they are, because we still don't know who that is, who the, who this plot is being run by. Right. Um, yeah. because the, the, the beef is just the country beef. They haven't made this plan. So they knew that Rocky won the oil lease. So they went to Rocky's to beat him up to make him sign a form to get mm-hmm. the lease back to whoever. But Rocky had already signed the lease over to O'Malley. Mm-hmm. So they apparently didn't know that until like nowish. This is my guess, but I'm probably having the same trouble that you're having. So now they're going to O'Malley to get the lease that Rocky signed to O'Malley over to them, whoever they are. Yes. So they 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 know about the oil on the land. Right. Why or how or whatever. That's a little whatever. Um, and then their first instinct is to go to Rocky to get him to sign it over. But it turns out that that doesn't. Yeah. Like you said, like he had already signed it over to O'Malley. Wait, did he sign it over? Not O'Malley, but um. Well, no, he said that he sell, that he he sold the lease to O'Malley. Okay, and that's who he got paid. That's and then Claude paid him from that deal. Right, and then on Claude's end, it never goes to O'Malley; it just goes to Claude. Right. So Claude Claude's the one who actually has the lease form that Rocky originally signed over, except that that's not in force yet because it hadn't been issued by the clerk because he was on vacation yes it's it's tangled it's tangled and we're overthinking it a little bit fundamentally this is that uh claude is running a scheme 
Right. It seems like Claude is trying to to work both ends. Yeah. And now his partner in one of the ends has killed him because this particular land does have oil on it, as opposed to the others, which were just part of a scam to get money from I guess that's the thing I'm wondering. Or is Jim wrong about the partner part? That Okay, that's the thing that's up in the air for me. I ended this thinking that there was Claude and then another scam that just, with the country beef, (laughs) uh, that overran Claude. I think that makes more sense in terms of what we actually see in the episode. Yeah. It's just Jim's supposition here about the silent partner. Yeah. How makes that more complicated. It does. <laughs> so I don't know if that's like, no, that's the story and Jim is telling us, or if that's like an assumption that Jim got wrong. This is where the layers come in because like Claude's scam is already complex in and of itself because I don't think the country beef have anything to do with Claude Right. God, we, we are just belaboring this. But I think what's happening here is that Claude had a scam going that was a little complex and would have been juice enough for an episode. <laughs> but the the instigating moment comes from yet another scam uh, that will, I mean, spoilers, we'll find out is right. from a guy who works for the oil companies. And it just completely barrels over Claude's scam. I do want to note that in no way does this make me like this episode less. Right. Yeah. No, this <laughs> this isn't like, oh, God, they, they messed up here. For me, I abstract it to scam A and scam B in right, my right. head so that I could just keep going. Mm. Um, but yeah. Um, so O'Malley is safe and Jim and Rocky are in jail. Thankfully, Beth Davenport makes an appearance. Yay, Beth. Jim wants to know how they can possibly be facing a first-degree murder charge with no murder weapon. The DA is saying they must have had an accomplice who escaped with the murder weapon, and they're all equally culpable. It doesn't seem like that'll really stick, but even if they uh, get charged with breaking and entering, that's still a year in, in county jail, and, you know, Jim doesn't want to face that either. Yes. So he has a plan. Talk to the DA. If he bails us out on the, you know, sets a bail for the breaking and entering, uh, I will produce the murderer and the murder weapon within 24 hours. He drops the charges against us and gets his real murderer. This doesn't seem like it'll fly, but Jim has a very specific plan for catching this murderer. Mm-hmm. It's common practice for people who own the parcels to auction them off once they know what they're actually worth. So, uh, since no one else seems to know that there's already oil on Parcel 334, the only one other than them who knows that is whoever's behind all this, right? Whoever Mm -hmm. has been setting the beef around to try and get these signatures and whatnot, right? Because that's the whole point, is there's oil. So, they'll have an auction, and whoever, to demonstrate for us through Rocky... If you wanted to buy that and I said 5000 what would you bid? 6000 And then I yes. say seven. I see. <laughs> if we both know, then I'll keep bidding. That's right. That says she'll, uh, you know, she'll run it by the DA. And then we cut to a VFW hall. Now, I'm going to start this off by saying this is a gratuitous scene, uh, but I love every moment of it. Yeah, this scene is super fun. There's no reason for Jim to be the auctioneer, but... Yeah, except that it rules. That's why. Yes, exactly. And Rocky... And Beth in the audience, oh, mm-hmm. it's a, it, this is a really fun scene. Jim uh, announces up top that in, dish, in addition to the sell price, uh, Joseph Rockford will retain a 5% royalty on, you mm-hmm. know, whatever continuing worth the land has. And then the bidding begins. So... 
it's an auction scene. We've, we've seen this auction scene, you know, throughout television and movies. Yeah. But what's remarkable about it is, uh, the timing's really good. And what it does is it gives us three people that it keeps focusing on that keep bidding. And it's like, yeah. all right, which of these three vaguely suspicious looking men in different ways is it going to be? <laughs> to the point of of it, it goes to one and he bids and then Rocky goes that's got to be the guy and yeah. then it goes to another one and he bids oh that's got to be the guy and you, and you feel like Rocky's going to blow it yeah like it, <laughs> it definitely feels like Rocky's going to just say it too loud and that's going to scare the guy off so the bidding gets up to one hundred and one thousand dollars then one hundred and five then one hundred and ten and Rocky this whole time is like every bid is like fifty thousand dollars. Sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's... There's a long pause, and then finally, a uh, older man in the back uh, bids one hundred and twenty thousand. Jim very <laughs> slowly pulls out the going once. Anyone else going to bid? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Going twice. You know, before he can finish the auction, plainclothes police pop up out of the auction crowd <laughs> and say that this uh, this this older, well dressed man is under arrest. He runs out the back and tries to jump into the truck where the beef are waiting. Yes. But the cops follow and shoot out the truck's tires. Yeah, it's like a legit shootout. Like, I was a little surprised by that, but yeah. Well, and then the our original hat-wearing goon from the very beginning comes out with a gun and he gets shot. It's very serious. Um, we do see an ambulance in the next scene, so apparently he, you know, yeah. survives or whatever. But You can come back and, and swear vengeance on, right. on Jim. <laughs> We don't get a single line from our villain. We just see him going off in handcuffs. Yeah. And then this sheriff going through his wallet and saying, uh, you know, get a load of this. His name's Thomas Snowcroft, in charge of de- development for Wesco. The Wesco? Well, they got gas stations every two, every two blocks. I've had a credit card with them for years. <laughs> yeah, Rocky's trust in the establishment, whatever it right. is. It's, it's, I love it when it's get, when it gets sh- shook. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so he was in charge of development. He must have had some kind of quota for new oil lands and resorted to strong arm tactics to fill this quota. And apparently, that is the uh, that that's apparently who our bad guy is. Yeah. And now he's gone. Now he goes to jail and we never hear him again. Uh, we end the scene by going out to 334 with the whole crowd where Jim demonstrates that there is in fact active oil on this land and restarts the bidding at $500,000. It's uh, it, there's a great bit right in the beginning where he's like, so uh, this is seven thousand pounds of pressure, so I'll have to ask you not to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like it's just, I mean, probably they probably just open an oil well. It's impressive. It's yeah. it, like you really feel it. All right, and now we get to our big victory celebration. Let me just say that for the next seven bullet points, <laughs> I just write down this has to go wrong. <laughs> When's this shoe going to fall? Uh, so we cut from the $500,000 bid, we cut to Jim pouring champagne. It's a big party. Uh, mm. Everyone's drinking champagne. And we get like a little, it's almost like the uh, credits montage in, at the end of like a 80s like teen movie or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like Phyllis comes up, her boyfriends come back. They're happy. Yes. Um, O'Malley comes up. Uh, he has no hard feelings. Even though the police cut up his bunker with jackhammers, he'll just, <laughs> he'll just have a new one built in a couple days. Okay. Jim wants to get a picture with his lawyer. Yeah, just the lawyer. My special lawyer friend. <laughs> Jim and Beth, their whole thing. Yeah. Um, so Jim and Rocky get their picture with Beth, and then she runs down the numbers. Well, 
let's figure on a thousand barrels a day, okay? That, that's reasonable. All right, at $12 a barrel, that's $12,000. You figure maybe 10 wells, $120,000. Now, the operator gets 30%, and 35% goes to each of you, which would be $42,000 a piece. 42000 <laughs> pretty good. You know, it's funny, some way I had the, the thought that it might be more the way that everybody's carrying on and everything. Dad, that's $42,000 per day. That's $42,000? For each of us. That's before expenses. Oh, naturally, and taxes. Oh, that goes without saying. I think I need some more champagne. <laughs> I legitimately was thinking about uh, translating that into today dollars, but $42,000 a day, whatever. Like, you all know that that's a lot of money. Uh, we have a great little heart-to-heart moment with Rocky and Jim, where Rocky says that working together these last few days in this partnership, well, it beats fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Wally, the <laughs> USGS officer, comes in in his uniform, and we know something is going to happen. Yeah. Again, I don't know if it's because I remember this, but it just it's just to me, it's like, he's got a smile on his face. He's a nice guy, but this is bad news <laughs> walking in the door here. I remember the first time I watched this as the scene started. Yeah. And then as they go through how much money it is and stuff, I'm like, oh, there's no way. Like, yeah, there's just no way. There's no way. <laughs> so Jim hands him some champagne and then he asks, so when did you sink that well? And Jim says, well, the well was already there. Yeah. Good bit of luck. It, like Rocky's like, I was lucky. Um, but here's the thing. He didn't issue the lease until yesterday, and the well was on the property before he issued the lease. And the whole deal with these leases is that it's land that the government has determined isn't already productive. Yeah. And he must have missed the well since it was hidden when he went out to do his survey however long ago. Yeah. So since it already has a structure on it, I mean, he doesn't spell this out, but I guess it's like, it should never have been put up for auction right. in the first place. It's like ineligible or something. Um, otherwise, why do we even have this program? That kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> and he just kind of shrugs. And then he says, thank you for the champagne. And then the man <laughs> appears with a $192 bill. He's like in the background while all of this is, is dawning on them. You can hear him asking for Rockford. And it's, it's great because it just feels like the impending doom. <laughs> That's it. That's the next bit. That's the 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 capper. So, yep, they're going to need to pay this $192 bill for all this champagne. Jim reaches <laughs> for his wallet, and then Rocky also reaches for his. And we end with a look between them, and Rocky says, partners. <laughs> freeze frame on Jim going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> end of episode. For the next Malibu Madness, and I won't remember that, if we do Rockfordishness, this ending. Mm-hmm is supremely not not the like you were saying the 80s movie like everybody coming in and everything getting tied up by a bow but the, from the moment of beth running the numbers yeah to to partners half that that is classic <laughs> rock traditionist yeah it's extremely good all right so i think my last loop around to the actual plot here right okay let's do it <laughs> so it is never determined where that well came from right at some point, someone built a well here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the oil guy, Snowcroft, I guess. So if he's the oil company contact or whatever that um, Orzek has for his lease scheme or con. Yeah. 
And then Snowcroft independently discovers that there's already an oil well on that parcel. That's where the conflict comes in because it's after, because it must, he discovers that it's there after right. they've already completed the sale where the, the scam where Rocky sells his lease to O'Malley and it goes back to Orzek. The thing about what's going on is I'm trying to suss out who's making money where. Right. right. Both the country beef costs money. Right. And uh, to sink that well, they need 20 roustabouts. Right. And there's gear and everything else. And they have to do it in quiet. So they have to send them. Uh, they apparently sent them elsewhere. They didn't execute them. Hmm. Um, so here's the thing, though. I think that in the end, they're just like roustabouts. Like, I don't think the beef sunk that well. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think the beef is one section of money that you have to pay for. Right. I think the roustabouts, you would have to use them and then move them somewhere else where they didn't tell their girlfriends they've moved. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that Snowcroft sunk the well. Like, I think that right. whole thing with the, the roustabouts must have been, I think that just happened. Like, that was just a thing that coincidentally was also happening. Well, then who sunk the well? That's what I'm saying. I think that is unex. I think that that's the whole thing is someone sunk the well. Right. Nobody knows who. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, because otherwise, why wouldn't Snowcroft just bought the oil lease when it went up for auction? Yeah. I guess he had to. I guess it went up for auction, so they had to win it. First, it's lottery. That's what I meant. So he, they didn't win the lottery. Right. Yeah. Rocky won the lottery. And then typically, if you win the lottery, you put it up for auction. Right. But no one knows there's a well there except for Snowcroft. Right. So the question is, who put the well there? So, because whoever put the well there took the trouble... To cap it off. Well, to cap it off and to to hide the roustabouts. Because that was this other mystery in the background, is that these girlfriends kept losing their boyfriends. Right. And I guess that's what I'm saying, is I think that was unrelated. I think that was just a bit. Okay. That's interesting. I think the truth of the mystery, such as it is, which we're just speculating now... I'm saying, like, someone sunk that well, like, five years ago or something. Like, it's been there forever. Yeah, it looks like it's an old well. And so they capped it off because it wasn't producing, but now it is, and they just, whoever had it thought it was dry or something. Like, that's what I think. I think we have to turn to our listeners for an answer on this one, because... I, I yeah i am confused i guess that's what i'm saying is it's a stubborn mystery in the sense that like the order of events of why people are doing what they're doing is a little not synonymous with what we find out over yes. the course of the episode and that's fine because i really like this episode like i this is one of those where i'm being a little critical because this is what we do is we overthink the plot but that doesn't mean that it's not a good episode yeah if you take everything at face value it all like it all hangs together totally fine it's it's just trying to figure out when exactly the motivations kicked in and who knew what when that it gets weirdly complicated i don't know it's it's good i like this one it was fun (laughs) yeah no it was a lot of fun and it is like you definitely have this question afterwards if you look too much at, i don't think the scam falls apart when you look too closely no. at it 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 isn't solved <laughs> right exactly there's there's still mystery there yeah but overall quite enjoyable yeah for sure so uh yeah so i sent you some not some not homework but a, a paper yes. that i found and we mentioned it earlier but the reason i sent it to you was and I'll we'll link this in the show notes. It's a it's an academic paper from from Oberlin College and also the U.S. Department of Justice. 
and I'm unclear <laughs> on what it's for. Um, yeah. But it's, it's essentially a economics paper about information asymmetry and reallocation of resources under mm-hmm. asymmetric information, which is a very game theory kind of thing. Anyway, it's called To Trade or Not to Trade, Oil Leases, Information Asymmetry, and Coase. He's an economist. Yeah, I googled that. I'm not a smart person. Don't, don't mistake me for that. But. What I found interesting about this was that they go into the actual background about oil lease uh, lotteries, and it basically confirms that the premise of this episode was 100% a thing that happened. Yes, yes. And I'm not entirely sure, but it feels like they're also saying that it's flawed, uh, that or somebody, some people have figured out how to game it because oil companies manage to make more money off of it than normal people. They're using it as like a case, like a real world case study to test these theorems. I guess, yeah. right? Like they're saying, yeah. if we run, if we if we run these equations based on information symmetry and information asymmetry, i.e., if everyone bidding knows what everything's worth versus if everyone bidding doesn't know what everything's worth. Right. Uh, here's what we predict the outcomes to be. And then they compare that with the historical data, uh, which they use uh, leases in Wyoming. But it's the same time period. Um, it's a 1975 to 1978, which this episode came out in 1976. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's exactly this thing. To the point of this entry fee was $10. Well, I mean, 1975, it probably, when this was written, was just a new thing they had introduced. Yeah, I guess it started in the 60s. And apparently they stopped in the 80s because auctions were are better than lotteries. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, so it's super interesting just because it was like, oh, this is... I think we've we've talked about this from time to time. I re- remember specifically talking about it with um in Gear Jammers about the like mm-hmm. oil shock and uh the trucker like the trucker strike and stuff like that, which was referenced in the episode and was also a contemporaneous historical event. Um just kind of being like how deeply rooted in actual things happening in America some of yeah. these episodes were, yes. even when they're <laughs> weird and something you'd never think about. So we'll link in the show notes. It has a bunch of math. Uh, but the the background section is what I was super interested in, in checking out to the point where they have a footnote referencing how the lottery system ended in 1987 in favor of auctions. Uh, one of the main reasons for this change was to combat middlemen from, quote, filing services who charge excessive fees to file entry cards on behalf of unsophisticated parties. For example, yeah. a $250 filing fee might be charged to a retiree in Florida with the middleman keeping $240 and sending the $10 fee in to the Bureau of Land Management. So, yeah, so to the point of there were scams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting because Claude's scam is not precisely that scam. Like, Claude is charging only $10. His he, his is a numbers game, I suspect. Yeah, his is, he's brokering a bunch of people to bid, and then no matter who wins he gets the lease by doing it through this fake O'Malley assignment. It's like doing a, a, a the office lottery. Like, we're all going to go in on lottery cards because the Mega Millions is so big and then not go in on it because you, you're the one organizing it and then taking a percentage of it. We're going to do the office lottery. Every come in on it. You buy all the tickets. One of them wins. You say, you tell everyone, oh, we only won this right. much, but you keep yeah. the millions from yeah. the actual winner. Yeah. So, you know. Fun times. 
<laughs> was there anything in there that, that as a more uh, uh, mathy individual? Unfortunately, I didn't see it till this morning, uh, so I didn't have a chance to play with uh, the number. Not that I think they got their numbers wrong or anything like that, but like it was, like I said, above my pay grade. It is by far more complicated than anything I actually can can follow. It's it's so intriguing that it's so exactly what this episode's about uh but it definitely is looking at it from uh dealing with a particular theorem that i'm not familiar with i i have i have a a thing when it comes to economics where (laughs) the early economics i learned i was like this is clearly a lie and (laughs) doesn't follow what i understand from game design and uh from that point on anytime an economics thing comes up i'm like is this built on a weird scaffolding that doesn't work Mm -hmm. My hope is that this paper says, yes, it does. And that (laughs) feeds my confirmation bias. So that'll be in the show notes if you want to check that out. But uh, yeah, fun stuff on the actual episode level. Despite the overthinking of the the mystery, I really enjoyed it. I wanted it to be a bit of a lighter hearted back to the roots kind of episode. And even though it was had some weirdly graphic violence for the Rockford Files, it was very limited. And I kind of forgot about it, so I feel like I got what I came for. Yeah, no, it's good. It was a it was a fun romp, uh, and uh, I even I enjoyed our little Twitter exchange. <laughs> I don't know why it amused me so, but it felt very it's funny, very Twitter. I feel like a lot of the individual parts you can kind of parse to death, but it actually holds together better than you would expect. It's a bit of a greater than the sum of its parts episode. If you're, if you're coming to 200 a day for a review before you watch the episode, I, I think sometimes our, our dissection of the episode can come across harsher than what our actual review of the episode would be. Uh, this is definitely a, a case of that, right? Like I, my review of the episode is golden. Like I, is a lot of fun. Well worth watching. Who who doesn't want to watch Rocky tagging along with Jim as they try to work out some kind of weird oil lease scam in California, <laughs> right? like rural California? Who doesn't want to see that? Yeah, when that bus pulls up, I'm on board. Yeah, uh, but yeah, because we enjoy it, then we spend some time drilling down into pun, drilling down into things uh, that maybe uh, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we don't own the rights to yet. Mm. Um. And a reminder, uh, in case you are not aware, uh, The Rockford Files is currently streaming on Amazon Prime and IMDb TV, which is Amazon Prime, but you can watch it for free there if you don't have Prime. So uh, we're back in the golden age of check out some of these episodes if uh, our conversation about them piques your interest. Yeah, uh, that was the thing that people kept reminding me when I shared the photo of the DVDs. Ah. People were like, "Uh, I can watch that for free. And I'm like, yeah, please do. I think that's uh, about all I have to say about the Coulter City Wildcat. As always, if you enjoy our conversations and want to uh, help keep us going, uh, the Patreon is the best way to do that at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And I know that we sad- sadly neglect the um, Twitter account every every couple months. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we are there at 200 pod for uh, we'll we will eventually get back to you. I, I promise. Yes. Well, that's it for this episode, but we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. Boing, boing. Boing, boing, boing. <laughs>